KHP Patreon Exclusive 007 Glen Rue I grew up in Dubois, Pennsylvania. During my life, I never really ventured far from the lines of the city. I never graduated high school because of money problems at home and took up work in one of the local factories, making bits of metal to be used in a larger product. I had grown tired of my regular day-to-day life, working in the factory and having no time to myself. I was in my forties at this point, and I hated my life. I felt as if it had been wasted. Giving my time, my precious time that I had very little left of, to a boss and a company They couldn't and wouldn't care less if I died or never came back. I hated the constant lack of time to find myself, to explore my interests. These thoughts eroded my happiness daily. I wanted to be free to do what I wanted, to work on my own schedule and have to rely on myself to survive. Fate must have been smiling upon me, As soon after I began having these urges, I saw a listing on a local job board, working for the state. I was to live in a cabin located on the road between Dubois and Penfield. My primary job duties were simple. Receive and deliver telegraphs with status updates and weather changes. Keep an eye out for pillars of smoke. Give shelter and care to travelers on the road leading past the cabin. The tasks became a bit more complicated in the winter. Clearing snow, placing stakes and a length of rope leading from the road to the cabin, and making sure the telegraph lines weren't destroyed each morning after a storm. The cabin itself was maybe 200 feet from the road, in a small clearing with a dirt trail winding up to it. A small outhouse sits behind the cabin on the side of the clearing. A stable sat on the other side of the cabin from the outhouse towards the road. The road was a packed earthen trail, wide enough for a wagon to drive down without hassle. Telegraph lines came from Dubois and followed the road till it reached the cabin. The stable next to the cabin was insulated and had enough storage of hay to last Clyde the winter. Don't judge me for naming a horse Clyde. Clyde was what he was named when I bought him for the job. Every month or two, a man named Isaac Watts would deliver a shipment of supplies to the cabin for me, around October, before the snows started. Isaac would deliver two large wagons of supplies to last me through the winter. Over time, I came to be friends with Isaac. He was one of the only people that I consistently saw throughout the year. Other than the duties that I stated before, I was free to explore the wilderness around the cabin and the mountainside. I could improve the cabin, hike, take Clyde for rides, and, most importantly, cut and store many tons of firewood. Arriving at the cabin on my first day was rather exciting. Clyde and I rode up, saddlebags carrying just the essentials, for our stay, until Isaac brought up the rest of my belongings to the cabin, in addition to his first supply run in a day's time. It was May at this point, 
and the first glimpses of summer were beginning to show themselves. I let Clyde roam in the small, fenced-off clearing to graze, while I began unpacking stuff that I had brought with me. The Glen Rue is a rectangular building, maybe 50 feet wide and 30 feet deep. There is one door on the wall that faces away from the road. A small kitchenette area is located on the corner furthest from you on your right when you walk in. There are no walls inside of the cabin to denote rooms, just different areas that belongings sort of dither between to show which area starts and which area ends. Prominently, in the middle of the cabin, a large fireplace, open on all four sides, acts as a stoic pillar in the middle of the cabin. To give you a better layout, when you walked into the cabin, the far right corner was the kitchen, the far left corner was my bedroom, the corner directly left of you was a study, containing books, papers, a desk, the telegraph equipment, and a ticker that would record messages on paper if I was away. The corner to your right was mainly storage and seasonal equipment that I didn't use all the time. My first months on the mountain were nothing too significant. Developing the routine of living absolutely alone was difficult at first. If I were to hurt myself out on the trail, or have an accident, there was no one to help me. I spent most of my time chopping firewood and becoming stronger. My arms had developed a bit more muscle than I had previously had working in the factory. Clyde was a great help, too. He would drag trees from the woods down trails that I had cut on the mountainsides. The hardest part of the job, in my opinion, was the telegraph system. They were just hard to get used to. I didn't know Morse code, so I had a handy chart that I used to read the messages that were ingrained on the ticker paper, and I struggled to send messages back quickly. I practiced tapping out messages each night before bed, and slowly got the hang of it. Travelers going to and from Dubois towards Penfield, Clearfield, St. Mary's, or north towards New York would pass by the cabin. It was a surprisingly busy road, considering how rural it was. Some travelers spent the night in tents at the clearing the cabin was situated in. Others asked to spend the night indoors, which was a welcome event after having lived alone for many months at this point. I had enjoyed my days at the cabin throughout the spring and the summer. Most of the trails on the mountain I had personally traversed and learned the routes of. I planted a fairly large garden to try and make the supplies that Isaac brought me every other month last just a bit longer. I had hunted some game from the mountains, taking a deer, some rabbit, and raccoon. Their meat butchered into steaks or strips of jerky and stored in a container under the ground to stay cool. The pelts were dried and tanned, and I had made myself a nice coonskin cap, rabbit mittens, and a nice removable lining with the deerskin that fit inside of my jacket. Fall began lowering the blazing temperatures of the summer months, and I had created a stack of wood that lined the side of the cabin, three rows deep. The fall harvests of above-ground vegetables had begun sustaining me more than the supplies brought by Isaac, 
and I had a sizable storage of his supplies when he arrived in late October with the winter surplus. With him, Isaac brought many gallons of oil for my lanterns, extra clothes, ink for my writing quills, books to pass the time, many, many boxes of cooking ingredients, new whetstones for sharpening my blades, ammunition for my rifle and revolver, and two large wagons stuffed with hay for Clyde. The men that traveled with Isaac for this journey to deliver the hay were his sons, Mark and Andrew, named after the disciples of Christ. I invited the men and gave them some warm teas and food that I had been preparing for their arrival after receiving the telegram that they were departing. Isaac's sons remarked on the large pile of split wood that I had created during the year. The two only came to the cabin on these end-of-the-year journeys and saw how the preparations of the ranger were made for each winter, and they didn't see the slow development of the work throughout the year like Isaac had done. After a few hours of talking, the trio departed my cabin and rode down the road at a brisk pace. I settled back in and began organizing the supplies that the group had delivered to me, satisfied that I would easily have enough to weather the winter months that were quickly approaching. The weather on the mountain that I was stationed at was almost entirely different from the areas that surrounded the mountain. When Clearfield or Dubois received a dusting of snow, the mountain I resided on could receive two to four inches depending on the speed of the storm. The mountain was a different beast when staying long-term upon its land. The snows began weeks in advance, before the towns near me received even a flurry of snowfall. During the time between the October delivery and the start of the first snow, only a fortnight later, I had done many things to prepare for the impending snowfall. I started by looking over my duties that I was to do as the ranger. I placed stakes with rope tied between them to guide any traveler that may encounter a whiteout or a storm whilst on the road. I set up ribbons of cloth that could easily be seen on the stakes and the rope that went partially into the road. I did the same with the ropes and stakes between the cabin's outhouse and the stables, preventing me or a guest to not become lost when walking the distance between the buildings. I shuttered the windows and made sure that I had brought an ample supply of firewood inside to dry out before use. My next venture was something that I had been reading about in a few books that Isaac had brought me throughout the year. I had read about people in the Canadian wilds using this technique to avoid being snowed in. I took spare lumber from the barn and stuck two large stakes into the ground, maybe five feet from the front door. I used the lumber, stacked it on its end to create a short sort of makeshift wall to prevent drifting snow from piling in front of the door. As the snows would accumulate, I would pile it off of this makeshift wall, creating a longer wall that would span the length of the cabin. This would prevent snow drifting over my walking paths. I would eventually create a ramp off of this snow wall, roughly seven feet tall, and it would extend about a dozen feet from the cabin. Using sticks and branches from the forest, I would create a sort of roof from the top of the ramp to the roof of the cabin. When the snow blew across the clearing to drift in piles, 
it would instead go up this reinforced snow ramp, over the roof of the tunnel, and over the roof of the cabin. This would allow me to not need to shovel snow daily in the mornings, and keep my large wood pile safe from being covered in snow. It would take a lot of time to build and secure this large wall, but once complete, it would take a large workload off of my daily routine. By mid-November, nearly a foot of snow had fallen on the mountain. I would shovel my walkways, work on the construction of the snow wall and ramp, and take Clyde for rides down the road in either direction for roughly two miles, making sure that there were no fallen trees or obstacles for travelers. When I left the cabin to go on these rides with Clyde, I would leave a note on my cabin door, stating the time that I left and when I would return. The cabin would be locked, but a day's supply of food and water would be in the barn for any that arrived when I wasn't there. While on the rides up and down the road, I would keep my eye on the transmission lines for my telegraph machine to ensure that the wires had not been damaged by wind, snow, or ice. I enjoyed the peacefulness of the rides, the stillness that the snow gives off. It was nearing the end of November. I had been riding the paths enough to have a well-worn trail in the deep snow, which at this point neared three feet. I kept an area of the road directly across from the pathways up to the cabin, cleared, as it would be an obvious sign to anyone lost in a whiteout that another person was nearby. I completed my snow ramps days ago, and they have held up well. I have only used a small percentage of the firewood stores along the cabin. Near Thanksgiving, I went hunting for turkey. I'd never defeathered a bird before, but the books that I had available to me gave me a good idea of how to go about the deed. I was unsuccessful my first two days of hunting, but I was able to gather both a deer and a turkey on the third day. I skinned the deer and left it to hang in the barn, out of sight of Clyde, of course. I plucked the turkey and scraped the skin of the down feathers and placed them in a sack. I hoped that maybe I could fashion myself a down-stuffed inner jacket or a pillow to keep myself warm in the excruciatingly cold months after the new year. I let the fire in the fireplace die down to coals before placing the turkey on a spit above the heat. I spent the remainder of the day turning the roasting bird every half hour or so, and when the coals became embers, I added wood to the areas furthest away from the bird to burn to coals again. While I cooked the bird, I pulled dough that had proved overnight and placed it over the heat, creating a very nice loaf of bread. I dug up, cleaned, and boiled some potatoes that were left in the garden and mashed them. My first Thanksgiving alone was going to be memorable, and I was going to have plenty of food left over for the coming days. I enjoyed my meal, listening to the tap-tap-tapping of the telegraph machine writing a message to me. I got up from the table and read the message, Blizzard in forecast tonight. Be prepared. I messaged back my status and the weather conditions, and a note that extra precautions would be taken on my end. I took one of my oil lamps and lit it, keeping it at a low flame, less than that of a candle. I took this lantern to the end of the walking path beside the road, and I hung it on a tree next to the path, so anyone coming through could see the light in the darkness. The blizzard that night was the first I had experienced on the mountain. 
I had encountered gusty winds and heavy snow, but nothing like the blizzard. The shutters on the cabin rattled, something fierce, as the winds howled around my home. I was kept awake by the sounds of branches straining against the storm, the cabin feeling as if it were going to be blown away or covered beyond recognition. In the midst of all of this sound, I heard a knock at my door, a vast trio of raps, and it faded into the sounds of the storm. I got up, cautious, from my bed, fumbling with the lantern in the dim light of my fire before walking to the door. When I opened it, a man stood before me. He introduced himself as Calvin Merritt. He was an older gentleman, dressed in what I assume were winter jackets, as there was a caked layer of snow on him nearly a half-inch thick. He brushed the snow off, and I let him inside, taking his jacket and setting it near the fire to melt and dry out. Calvin had set out for New York, to Pittsburgh. He then decided to go to Philadelphia, taking a shortcut over my mountain to save time. He had been unaware of the coming blizzard as it thundered down upon him. He happened to see my lantern in the distance and rode his horse to the cabin, hitching it in the stable before coming to knock on my door. I offered him some Thanksgiving leftovers from the icebox, to which he gladly accepted. We sat chatting for about two hours and swapped life stories. Calvin was well-read and had traveled quite far in his time, visiting much of the Midwest and part of the South after the war had ended. He wished to visit Philadelphia to see where the Constitution and other historical events had taken place. I had no information to give him as I had never left Dubois before this job. To that, he told me that I needed to get out and see the world, as it was a beautiful place. I set up a cot that had been in the cabin before my arrival for Calvin. He pulled some rolled blankets off of the line near the fire that had dried out, and laid his cot on the other side of the fire. He was snoring within minutes as I fell asleep, watching the flames dance in the fireplace. I awoke to the smell of breakfast. Calvin had begun cooking bacon turkey, and other easy-to-find foods from my pantry area. It didn't look like he had rummaged that much to find what he needed. I got up and went over to the kitchen area, grabbing my kettle and going to get a packed pot of snow for coffee. We ate and traded more stories. The blizzard had dropped nearly a foot and a half of snow overnight. When it was time for Calvin to leave, he assisted me in clearing the uncovered paths of snow before saddling up his horse. I stated that I would accompany him a few miles to gauge the condition of the road and the telegraph lines, as it was a daily routine that I was required to do. Calvin seemed to enjoy my offer, as riding the past few weeks had been lonely. We rode our horses down the pathway, before they entered the road and began walking on the paths of snow that Clyde and I had packed every day. Some areas of the road were nearly drifted shut and came up to my feet in the stirrups. Our horses pressed on, though. Once I had reached the point that I normally turned around at, I decided to go on just a few minutes more. It may be a month or more before someone comes down the snow-covered mountain path again. I turned around after another half mile or so and headed back towards my cabin. Once there... Clyde and I rode the other direction on the road, 
to our point of turning around. Two trees had fallen, and I tied them to Clyde, who pulled them off the road with ease. Then we departed the snow-covered road for our home. The cabin. Glen Rue. I left Clyde in the stable and made sure he had hay and water before walking inside. I grabbed a large bucket and began melting more snow for Clyde at his next feeding. When I walked into the cabin, I saw that the telegraph had a message for me. I will be in touch. I looked at the ticker paper and didn't see any message prior to the most recent one. I tapped out, repeat last, and waited. I waited nearly 15 minutes with no reply. I checked and double-checked my telegraph equipment for deficiencies, but found none. I got up and walked outside to find that it had begun snowing lightly again. I checked on Clyde and refilled his water before walking to the road to retrieve my lantern from the blizzard. I shut it off and took it inside to refill it. I spent the rest of the day processing the deer that I had killed only two days earlier, cutting steaks and specific cuts of venison that I was excited to have later. It was just after dusk when I walked outside again. An inch of fluffy light snow had fallen covering the footprints from this morning. I took Clyde and saddled him for a night ride. I had taken a few rides with Clyde at night to calm my mind and experience the area. I took a lantern with us and we set off in the direction that Calvin and I had rode earlier. I was having a good time with Clyde, making small talk and taking in the sights of the winter night. The sky was overcast and... Snow fell softly on the ground around us. It wasn't a storm, but a quiet building of the snow. The area was so quiet, if we stopped, I could almost hear the snow landing on itself. After a half-hour ride, I turned us around and began headed back to the cabin. I knew something was off the instant I had sight of the pathway. My lantern that I had taken from the path was now hanging and lit, burning brightly against the darkness and the snow. Flakes hit the glass and sizzled instantly into steam. As I took the lantern and snuffed it out, I looked around, seeing no footprints besides Clyde's leaving the path. I stabled Clyde and walked towards the cabin. Footprints that were not mine led from the outhouse to the cabin lost under my snow ramp as it had no fresh snow under it to leave distinct prints. My note that I had placed was the same as what I put each morning. I knew that I was going to be back much sooner than what I stated on the note. But did the person walking around my cabin know that? As I pulled my key to the cabin door, I saw a light pass under, as if a lantern had been quickly swept by. I drew my revolver. The door had been locked. This person broke in to what? Steal my supplies? My rifle? Leave me and Clyde for dead out here? I slipped the key into the lock and turned it slowly. I took a deep breath before pushing on the door latch and bursting through the door. I scanned the open room that was the interior of the cabin. I saw no one standing inside. A lit lantern sat on my desk, 
that I wrote diary entries at, as well as read my books. I held the revolver in my hand and looked behind the door. Nothing. There was no one here with me. I stepped outside again to clear my head and walked over to the footprints in the snow. The darkness required me to bring the lantern. The prints that I had seen turned out to be my own. I didn't remember going to the owl house before leaving, but I must have. The soles of my boots matched perfectly to the prints that I saw. I walked back to the cabin and locked the door. I ate the remaining turkey I had as sandwiches heated by the fire. I put on a kettle of snow for tea to calm my nerves. I sat down on my desk and wrote in my journal about the events that had just transpired. As I was writing, the ticker on the telegraph tapped through. I looked at my tape. See you soon. I stared at the tape. Were the guys in Dubois just trying to play some joke on me? I tapped back. Not funny. Any updates? And waited a few minutes with no response. I tapped. Glenru Cabin to Dubois Station. Any condition updates? I had about given up hope when the machine started tapping. On my way. What the hell did that mean? They could have at least sent an answer to my question. Who was on their way? No one should be trying to come and help me. I didn't need it. After drinking my tea, I laid down in bed and thought about the events. Was I somehow developing cabin fever? Everything I read told me that I shouldn't have it, as I'm outside for a few hours each day. Was I developing amnesia? I didn't remember setting my lantern or going to the outhouse. I dozed off during my thoughts of ways to remedy this situation. I was startled awake by the telegraph rapidly tapping a long message. I groggily walked to the paper and read what it was. Glenru. Storm knocked out wires outside of town. Poles and wires repaired. No contact for two days. Status update. Two days? No, I had just gotten messages from the station yesterday. Did I? I looked for the papers that contained the messages I had received. I found them tucked by my pillow. Yes, Dubois had messaged me yesterday. I tapped Glenru to Dubois. Status, normal. Weather, clear. Nothing to report. Did you attempt to send messages yesterday? A minute went by before. No attempts made until sure of repair success. We'll update you around noon on weather. Possible storm coming. A tree branch may have touched the wires, causing the messages I received, but that would have just come through the ticker as nonsensical jumbled letters. I had received actual sentences. Short ones, but coherent ones. I saddled up Clyde and began my daily rounds. Another two inches of snow fell overnight, bringing the total to nearly four and a half feet that was on the ground. Our trails almost seemed like small tunnels in themselves at this point. We rode the pathways that were carved into the snow a few miles in each direction. I saw nothing touching or obscuring the wires on my end. I turned around with Clyde, and we headed back to the cabin. 
I noticed something in the distance, down the valley. I could see smoke. A small wisp of smoke like that from a campfire. Someone was within, I'd say, a mile of me. I'm unsure of any roads to get to the area they were at, though. It may have been someone that was trying to look for a fishing spot to do some ice fishing. My maps showed a small lake down in that direction. Clyde was stabled, and I grabbed my rifle, a rope, and some of my warmest clothes. I figured if there was the potential for a storm to come in, I might as well try to nab another deer before parts of the mountain become impossible to traverse. I trudged down one of my paths, the snow slightly lower from me previously walking on it, but I still needed to push through two feet of packed powder. I set myself up in my usual spot, and within minutes, I had downed a deer. I struggled to drag it along the mountain through the deep snow. As I approached the clearing, I fell, covering myself with snow on my back and side. I got up and began pulling again. Once in the stable, the deer was easily gutted and skinned. I left the meat in the stable to freeze as I went to the cabin with the skin to begin cleaning it. When I opened the cabin door, I saw that the ticker had gone off. A message read, Major storm arriving. Ice and multiple feet of snow expected. Prepare for worst. Check-in and updates required are now one in morning, noon, and night. Be safe. I messaged back. Message received. We'll update tonight. I brought in a few extra steaks from the stable and put them in the ice box in the pantry. I gathered as much snow as I could for water and gave Clyde extra hay, pretty much all he could eat if he wanted. This was in case I was unable to reach him for a day or two. I checked to make sure that the shutters were secured and that the wooden stakes were stable on my paths. I brought in triple the amount of firewood that I normally would have, just to be prepared. I began making a few loaves worth of bread, and tried to pass the time until nightfall. When it finally came, I sent my check-in and status update, and went to the stable. I patted his head and rubbed his side for a bit, just giving him reassurance that I would be back as soon as I could get there. As I sat with him, I could hear the winds beginning to pick up outside. I gave Clyde one last pat before walking outside. Snow blistered my face as I walked from the stable to the cabin. A whiteout was nearly occurring from the wind alone, kicking up the snow that was already on the ground. I listened to the fire crackling and the wind howling as I read The Adventures of Huck Finn. I was enjoying the book, one of the newer ones that Isaac had brought me. I must have become engrossed in the book because a shiver ran through me. Looking up, I saw that the fire was nothing more than dying embers. I threw some smaller logs on the fire and used my bellows to blow the fire back to life, heating my cabin once again. I was just about to lay down when I was startled by a bang, and then a tapping sound. A chill ran through me as I looked for the source of the sound. The window by the kitchen. I ran over to it and looked. The shutter had become unsecured and was beating against the cabin's wall. I saw a large branch sitting just outside of the window that wasn't there before. It seems it fell and damaged the shutter, and the small twigs from that branch were scraping and tapping the glass. 
I put on my heaviest coats and waded into the storm. The wind was blowing as I walked through the snow to the window. I grabbed the shutter and, after a few tries, secured it to the window once again. This time I tied a small length of rope across the two latches so they would not come undone. I pulled the large branch out of the snow it was resting in and dragged it away from the cabin as best I could. I trudged through the almost chest-high snow to the cabin again, where I closed myself inside, taking off my layers to dry out and warm up. I saw the ticker had gone off again while I was outside. Going to the paper, it simply said, Here. I don't know what that meant. I looked out the slits of the shutters as best I could to see if anyone was outside in the storm, but I saw no one. I typed back, Nice one. You got me. And left it at that. Fire had warmed up the cabin again, and I stoked it one last time before bed. I woke up to more tapping on the window. Did that damn shutter fall off again? It was coming from the window above my bed. I turned slowly to look at the window, but only saw darkness as the dim fire from the fireplace was worthless. I reached for my lantern and looked to see if fallen branches or something had somehow gotten under the slats. I lit it and held it up to the window. A face peered back at me through the small slit between the two shutters. I could see an eye and part of a cheek. I pulled myself up and looked again. The face was gone. I heard Clyde whinnying outside in the stable. Not a typical little huff and snort, but that of fear. When the animal is threatened. The storm still raged outside. There was no way a person had traveled the road and ended up at my cabin during this blizzard. By the sounds coming from outside, this was one of the worst blizzards in history. I got up to stoke the fire. I was seeing things now. I had forgotten events, and now I'm seeing faces. I'm getting jumpy. I stood up quickly when I heard something over the howling snow. A hard footstep by the door, like someone was knocking snow off of their boots, then some steps in the crunchy snow under the tunnel I had made. I grabbed my revolver and made my way to the door. I was a few steps away when I heard, knock, knock, knock. I unlatched the door and pulled the hammer on my revolver. I opened the door about a foot and jumped back. A man with a crazed expression on his face was looking right at me. I fell on my ass and scooted back. The door flung wide open. The man wore denim pants, a tattered, bloody jacket, and blood caked his face and hair. In one hand, he held a hunting knife that was covered in blood. I screamed louder than I ever had before and kicked the door shut on him before firing two shots from my revolver at the door where he stood. Smoke filled the air between me and the door, blocking my view. It had latched itself when I slammed it shut. I stood up, aiming the revolver and opened the door. A small pool of blood sat in front of the doorway where he had been standing, but there were no signs of the man. I stepped out, looking around. There were no tracks through the snow that indicated that anyone had walked to or from the cabin in either direction. I locked the door again and closed every curtain on every window in the cabin. Then I put blankets over the windows and made sure that I couldn't see out of any of them. 
I sat in my chair and waited. The fire crackled. The wind battered the cabin. The trees creaked and groaned in the winds. But I heard nothing that gave me any indication there was another person outside. I stoked the fire and dragged my bed away from the wall and towards the middle of the room. I laid down and slept well into the morning. Three feet of snow fell on the mountain overnight. It might have been more, but a thick layer of ice packed much of the snow down and caused a hard layer to form on top. It was difficult to traverse the snow, as it refused to budge unless broken. I received no word from Dubois and sent multiple messages updating them of the bloodied man seen outside of the cabin. It was nearly three in the afternoon when I finally made it to the stable. Clyde was fine in his stall. The hay and water I had given him easily lasted the night, and his water was refilled promptly when I entered. There were no signs of any other person being here. I found no footprints in the snow, and the blood outside of the door had mysteriously vanished by morning. I had no explanation for the thing that had occurred during those few days on the mountain. I requested extra lumber that spring from Isaac and built a new, more secure door and replaced the one with bullet holes in it. I stayed a ranger on the mountainside of Dubois for six more years. I eventually left that mountain and took Calvin's advice of exploring the country. I took Clyde with me and together we ventured southwest to explore Kentucky, Missouri, Louisiana, Arkansas, and all of the other states between, before finally ending in North Texas. There we settled as ranch hands, working for a small ranch owned by a great couple that paid me well. I rode Clyde every day while doing the daily fence checkups and other menial tasks assigned to us. Sometimes, though, I still have nightmares about that night in the cabin. I see the man standing in the doorway of the small cabin that I now reside in on this property. For some reason, I don't have my gun, and the man barges in. That crazed look in his eye that I saw between the shutters that night 